All right. That's much better. All right. Uh, just to show you where we are and where we're coming at from this sermon, uh, we have been looking at the Ten Commandments the past few Sundays, particularly in our um, evening services. Um, and so today would typically be the day in which I would do uh, my full exposition on the First Commandment. And as many of you like to know, I like to go a little bit more in depth on each of these commands. Um, but I'm not going to do that for you all today. I'll do that next week because I want to save us from a long sermon after a nice big meal. Um, and, and I know what it is like to be in the pews. Um, with that said, uh, we still will continue uh, to look at this commandment. But today I want us to look at it more devotionally. What this commandment looks like, particularly as we come to this table that's before us now. Though I wanted to give the formal introduction to the first commandment, um, in God's good providence towards us, the first commandment, a commandment necessitating our ultimate allegiance to Yahweh Himself, this is actually the moral force behind the institution of the Lord's Supper. What we are about to participate in in the Lord's Supper is actually a declaration of our union and communion with Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. By us participating in this meal, we are declaring to the world and to one another that there is only one triune God, and He has revealed Himself to us perfectly by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And He is indeed our salvation. To help us prepare uh, to come before this table, I believe it is pertinent for us to read from the Gospel of John. So if you would, start find your way to John uh, and open up to John chapter 6. And before we read and pray, I want us to give a quick background for where we will be reading in the Gospel of John. John 6. As you're turning there, uh, the, the first uh, of the Gospel of John, the first half or so, is all about Jesus unfolding His true dive. Uh, divine nature uh, to those who are coming in contact with them. Uh, the entire purpose of the first half of John's gospel is to show without a doubt that Jesus truly is the divine Son of God. By John chapter 6, Jesus has been busy in his ministry throughout the regions of Galilee, teaching people of the salvation that he, the Son of God, has come to provide and doing miraculous signs to vindicate that his message about him being divine was indeed true. In John chapter 5, we actually read that Jesus was teaching that he was indeed equal with the Father, a statement of his divinity. And we also see Jesus perform the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. After this miraculous sign, Jesus goes on this back-and-forth trip across the Sea of Galilee in which many of his followers are searching for him. They are amazed by this Jesus, what he teaches and what he is doing, and they want to see more. These followers eventually find Jesus in Capernaum, and began asking where he was. So beginning at John chapter 6, uh, verse 25, we will pick up the narrative, and then we'll pray that God would bless our time of worship. So then John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who sent, uh, whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who uh, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen and yet do not believe. All that the Father has give, uh, gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, whoever feeds on me will also, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard, heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it, would, who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let us pray. Father, we're coming to a text in which your Christ and his perfect wisdom came speaking perfectly clear, but he hid it from those who would not come to you because they are not drawn by the Father. Father, we ask now if there are those among us who have not been drawn from you, who that you do not draw to yourself in your love of redemption, that they would see their true wretched estate and see that they can cry out to you, knowing that it is indeed you and you alone who gives them salvation. And Father, as we prepare this text and as we come before this table, help us that we might see whether there is unbelief such as these individuals among us. Lord, root out unbelief from our hearts and may our true faith so shine forth that it uh, results in love and adoration for your name. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Now then, that was a long text. Thank you for going through it, but it's absolutely worth it because we are going to be looking at this a little bit more devotionally. And so I won't be giving a full detailed exegesis of this text, but I'll try my best to make sure it's rooted in the text itself. Brothers, what I want us to see is that we have the moral command and imperative to search and examine our hearts before we take this meal, as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 32 illustrates for us. In John 6, we clearly see Jesus revealing that he is the divine Savior, the promise of God to come and give his people new life. But what I want us to focus upon is the crowds in John 6. I want us to look at the crowds, the people. They illustrate a clear depiction of the sin of persistent unbelief to what God had revealed through his message about his son. And this sin of persistent unbelief is the highest pinnacle of what it means to break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Unbelief is the rejection in what God has sufficiently revealed. And this sin is ultimately an upheaval of God's lordship upon our own lives. And the replacing of him with another, whether a false god of the various world's religions or with the god of our mere opinion. By shirking the revelation of who God is through the Son, man most clearly and vehemently breaks the first commandment. This particular sin is eternally grave and serious, and only those who have been born from above are able to put this sin to death. Today we are coming to this text in the context of belief, though. We are coming as those who know of Christ. We are coming as those who believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And we do presuppose as those who profess Christ that we have repented from sin, from this sin of persistent unbelief. However, and I mean however, this does not mean that unbelief will not crawl back into our hearts some way. We very well may have another God creeping its way back into our hearts and lives. This is why we must examine ourselves now 
to truly see where our allegiance lies with God in Christ or another. So then to guide our exploration of this text, we will look at three questions that are presented by the crowd's interactions with Jesus in this passage. Our examination of these questions is to goad us to examine where our allegiance truly lies. This God, the one true God in Christ, or our own opinion, another God. These questions do overlap with one another, uh, but that's what this text presents. Different angles and characteristics of unbelief. And it is these various angles of unbelief that we need to examine and root out of our lives before we come to this table. So then, with that said, our first question is this. The first question of the crowd uh, that we see illustrated their unbelief toward what Christ had, uh, had revealed is found in verses tw- uh, verse 25. I'll read that very quickly. Um, I'm sorry. There we go. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they, the crowd, said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? You see, in verses 25 and 26, the crowds have finally found Jesus and asked where he has been. But Jesus helps us understand why the people were actually seeking for him. They were wishing for their fill of bread. Jesus tells the crowd, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate You ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for that which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. After an exchange between Jesus and the crowds about the true nature of God's food and the bread that Christ provides, Jesus declares the charge to the crowd that they came, they come, and they look for Christ, but they did not come and believe that he is the Son of God to give new life. This charge of coming and believing... Uh, This idea of people coming to Jesus but not truly believing in who he truly is will characterize the rest of the chapter and our other points. But I want to quickly hone in on the nature of the crowds of belief and their initial reaction to Jesus. For the crowd that was searching for Jesus, they ultimately came not for Christ, not for the benefits that he actually offered, but they came for the benefits and blessings that the crowd thought Jesus was giving. You see, the crowd wanted Christ, but not for salvation or to know of new life in God. They came for some measly bread. Brothers, I believe this approach, coming to Christ for what we think he actually offers, is actually much more characteristic of what we see today in Christian churches. You see, many people profess Christ and laud and worship him, but not for who he is or what he actually provides, such as that is salvation. But they profess Christ for the blessing they falsely presuppose he gives. In our day and age, this presumption of mere physical blessing coming from Christ is commonly known as the prosperity gospel. This false gospel teaches that if one professes Christ, you can get a bigger bank account, better health, or whatever other physical blessing we can think of. It is today's bread, as it were. This false gospel is an abomination to our God. And false teachers capitalize on the teaching of physical blessings of scriptures. But they so distort these blessings to make them the primary blessings that God gives in Christ. They don't see them as merely ancillary blessings that God gives at his mere pleasure. This is what we saw this morning. We have the tendency to exchange the earthly for the heavenly. And this is exactly what the uh, prosperity gospel does. For us here, at this church, 
I suspect that unbelief of the crowds and the unbelief of those under the influence of the prosperity gospel is easy for us to spot. Amen? Right? We wouldn't dare believe such things. We're not so easily swayed to miss the ultimate blessings of the true gospel for mere temporary pleasures. I hope we can all give a hearty amen to this, but I must ask this, brothers. Does the allure of the prosperity gospel still find its way into our hearts in some measure? And again, I'm talking to an explicitly Christian audience here. I'm not talking to unbelievers in their sin. I'm talking to us, brothers. Brothers, just because we can spot the gross abuse of this kind of unbelief in others does not mean that we have some form of the prosperity gospel for ourselves. You see, there may be a troubling, uh, there is a troubling trend within the evangelical faith. We evangelical and reformed believers, we love the gospel properly, and we also love the other benefits that God gives to us. They are good. And we should, because all God's blessings, both eternal and temporary blessings, are a display of God's goodness towards humanity, towards us. We too love the secondary blessings that are found in scriptures, and we should. They are a proof that God is good to even fallible, uh, wicked men such as us. But there may be the tendency to commingle and mix these blessings into one. And where we mix these two blessings, the gospel with temporary blessings, where we mix the gospel with secondary blessings, we ultimately get another gospel. Brothers, we can easily spot big bank account preaching. But when it comes to family values and social stability associated with the true gospel properly, it becomes more difficult to parse out where secondary blessings end and where the primary blessings begins. Let me explain. One area where we might mingle our understanding of the primary and secondary blessings is this. is how we speak of others who are in sin. Our language may sound something like this. Oh, if only he came to know the Lord. He made much better decisions in his life, right? If only, if only he came to church and fellowship, then maybe he could get those kids in order. If only he could get serious about the faith, then his life wouldn't be as miserable as it is now. You see, brothers, I'm not saying that God doesn't use the gospel to change people's poor habits. We should note that God does bring people to himself so that they may no longer have sin, that they might not sin. But the ultimate end goal of our belief in Christ isn't that we have happy nuclear families with white picket fences and so forth. Our desire to have others come to know the Lord isn't that they merely have moral or social reformation. That's no gospel. It's just growing up and acting like any decent citizen. And unbelievers do this all the time. Because God gives these temporary blessings of moral and social reformation as he sees fit. But our desire for sinners is that they come to know God. That they come to God. And God alone. Not because it brings structure or better family life or to stop people from building up debt, or whatever possible temporary benefit comes to our minds. These are only secondary blessings. They aren't the gospel. They aren't the gospels. 
Sinners should come to God just for the mere pleasure of knowing God and His glorious salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen? Our prayer isn't for mere social reformation. It's for spiritual renewal. To give another example, in our current context here at Grace, and we need to be careful, brothers, because I have this tendency myself, and it's sin. We may have the temptation to share the faith with others because now we have something to really offer folks. With our new facility and location, this is how we'll finally get visitors to say that now that we're in a better part of town, now we can really get to work with growing evangelism. Now that we got the gospel and all of this, now can, God can really start using this church. Again, brothers, catch what I'm saying. I'm not saying that these wonderful facilities aren't just that. This place is wonderful, amazing. We should be thankful. God has blessed us immensely, immensely and we should give thanks. But the strength and vitality of the gospel and of this church, Grace Baptist Church, our strength and vitality does not depend on how much drywall we have around us. How beautiful these lights are, brothers. But the strength and vitality of the gospel and of this church does not depend on how much drywall we have, but it depends on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is all we need. That is what we profess. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Whether in Jackson or in Castlewoods, our desire to see this church grow is not rooted in mere physical blessings that God may or may not give us. God will build His church as He sees fit because God loves His glory. And God will use His glory however He sees fit, whether in a godly lady's small living room, whether in an annex of a library in a tough part of town, whether in a dilapidated, frustrating old house, or in this wonderful place in the Castlewood subdivision. It's not about the secondary blessings, brothers. It's about God's glory alone in His salvation in Christ. Brothers, don't confuse God's secondary blessings, His benefits with God or the gospel. His secondary benefits are good like the bread that He gave. But God, as revealed in Christ, is the true blessing, the true bread that gives eternal life. Believe in Christ for Him alone. For Him alone. He is enough. For He is enough to satisfy. The second question that we see is that while the larger crowd may have received Jesus' words of Him coming from heaven, a particular group among the crowd became indignant at what Jesus was saying. In verse 41, read this. Please read with me. Verse 41 of chapter 6. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to him, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, the Jews knew what Jesus was saying here. In the previous interactions in John 5 we can see that the Jews understood that Jesus was claiming to be divine. They understood it. They tried to stone him for it. And this infuriated the Jews because it was Jesus. Because if Jesus was divine, that that meant that Jesus had the divine right over their lives. If Jesus is divine, he has claim over them. 
If Jesus is divine, simply put, he is king. But the Jews did not want this king. They snort back with a foolish response. He can't be from heaven. We know where he comes from, Mary and Joseph. Now, this objection may have been presented with some healthy skepticism, perhaps. Maybe the Jews here are truly trying to discern whether Jesus is the Christ. And once they get all their facts straight, they'll come to believe. But I don't think the Gospel of John is uh, leading us to read the Jews' question in this way. In chapter 1, John goes out of his way to display Jesus' divine origin. And in chapters 2 through 5, we see Jesus perform greater and greater signs, culminating at this point with the feeding of the 5,000. These signs act as vindication that Jesus' message, message about himself, that he is actually divine, that he is the second person in the Trinity, that he is the Son of God, are indeed true. And the Jews recognized that it was Jesus that were performing these signs. Jesus had an airtight case. He is clearly divine. What were the Jews going to do about it? But for these Jews, rather than coming to Jesus and interpreting what they previously understood in light of these well-attested miracles, in light of this new revelation, they came back to the same old argument. But he's just a man. Yes, Jesus was a man. But after what he had preached and the miraculous signs that he performed, the Jews had the responsibility to take seriously what was being presented by Jesus. They should have come to the conclusion that Jesus is God and man in one. But instead, they came back to the tired, foolish argument. You're not my God. You're just a man. They said this not because they had sufficient proof, but but because they did not want this Jesus over their lives. Brothers, the application for us here is rich, but I'll limit myself to one point. Here it is. For us who believe in Jesus' divine right over our lives, do we still diminish his glory, his kingship over us? For us, this can come in many ways. We can say things like, I know I need to obey Christ, but I still have to live in the real world, Hal. Some of the things y'all ask aren't feasible right now in my life. I know I should evangelize and engage with unbelievers, but I have to keep up appearances at work or with my family gatherings, etc., etc., I know that Christ has a right over my life, but my culture just doesn't get it. I don't want to be labeled. And I'm sure there are many other scenarios that you can think of. I'm sure all of us are guilty of caving our allegiances to anything but Christ just to save face, possible frustration, or embarrassing situations. But every time we use that word, but, to shirk our responsibility to be singularly devoted to Christ we figuratively scoot the seed of Christ out of the way of the throne in our hearts to make way for other gods to come in and supplant him from our lives. Brothers, Christ has divine right not just over some or even most of our life. He has divine right over every aspect of our life. Be warned, brothers. And for those who do not know of Christ in here, be warned. If you won't have Christ as king, If he will not be your God, he will not have you as his servant. It is far better to be a servant of this king than to be king over one's life in the pits of hell. 
The Jews didn't want this Jesus as king. The question for us, do you? Do we? Moving on, our third question. Jesus engages with the Jews grumbling, and he takes it one step further. If the Jews didn't like that uh, he said that he was coming from heaven, that he had come from heaven, indicating that he was the one true God, then they would hate Jesus' next words. And they still have a funny ring in their tone to us. We see this in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give you for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So not only do the Jews uh, gasp at Christ's statement, even the disciples admit that this is a difficult statement later on. Now it should be noted that Christ is purposely being provocative with his speech. He does go on to clarify with his speech Uh, that his speech is indeed spiritual and should be understood spiritually. We see this in verse 63. By no means does Christ actually mean that his material, bodily flesh and blood must be consumed in order to have eternal life. We are not papist. Jesus is talking about how we should come and how we should so come to him and internalize his message, his gospel. See this in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, notice that, the words, the uh, statements that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. He's talking about the gospel, the pronouncement. You see, it was Jesus' words, his message, that we must internalize, that they were to internalize, not literal flesh and blood. With that said, let's focus on the unbelief of both the Jews and the disciples. Ultimately, both of these groups were not catching the nuance that Jesus presents in his message. They took Jesus' words on the surface. When Christ was calling them to explore what he meant, uh, I'm sorry, they, they took Jesus' words on the surface when Christ was calling them to explore what he meant. But you see, even the disciples of Jesus left him. His own disciples said, this is too much, except for the twelve. Jesus' interaction was to show that it is indeed up to the Father to draw sinners to come and truly explore and truly internalize the message of the gospel, as we see illustrated in Peter's confession in verses 68 and 69. Let's actually read that, verses 68 and 69. This is Peter's confession of Christ. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This was the proper response. Jesus provides eternal contentment and life to those that the Father has given him to raise in glory. Left to ourselves and to our own sensibilities, we would never accept the message of the gospel, whether murky in our understanding or adamantly clear of what that message may be. We even see this later in John's Gospel, that when it's just adamantly clear, Jesus speaking with perfect clarity, these people, these unbelievers, they're still not going to come. No matter how clear or eloquent he may have presented his argument, his message, or how perfect his signs were. That's actually the entire purpose of John, is that they hated him without cause. 
What we must see here, brothers, is that God must first act, and all we do is respond to God first acting. But it is God who acts to draw men unto himself. But we still need to recognize that it is Jesus' message, that Jesus' message did not only go to the twelve or to the disciples or even just the Jews. His message went to the crowds, both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus casted this message of free grace to everyone at his disposal. But it was the Father who drew men in. And these men that are drawn by the Father are marked by one distinguishing quality. This quality is that these men explored with fervor the message of Jesus. Even when Christ's message could have been received as odd or strange or even blasphemous to the ears. You're telling us to eat flesh and blood? No. They explored his message. These men ultimately have the same position as Peter. One that recognizes that Christ has the words of everlasting life. When Christ confronts the twelve after, one, uh, after the other disciples abandon him, Christ asks, What do you want? Do you, you, you do not want to go away also, do you? And brothers, this question isn't a sign of Christ's loneliness. Do you want to go away? Christ's question to the twelve is not a question about his loneliness. It's a question to them, confronting them, asking them, Who is your God? Will you go away from your God also? Will you go away from the one who gives you life? Brothers, this is our question too. Do we find contentment, our life, our all in Christ? Even when confronted with things that we don't immediately understand. Is Christ still good to us? Even when the difficult things of his meshes seem too much. When we have to take up that cross daily and follow him. When we are called to deny ourselves, is Christ still enough? Is Christ enough even when we grow discontent in the faith? Or put in a more positive way, is Christ so good? Is Christ so unfathomably amazing to you that you accept whatever he brings? Is Christ so sufficient for you that you'll struggle to learn more of him and his gospel? Is Christ so fulfilling that you will happily take up that cross and follow him? Is the love of Christ so amazing, so compelling, that you will give your life, your all, for him? Brothers, is Christ's glory your glory? Is this gospel, is it enough for us? Brothers, if this is your life, if this is your gospel, if Christ is your all, if he is your God then come to this table. In doing so, when you come to this table as believers who profess like Peter, you proclaim that Christ is sufficient for you and you proclaim that his work, his substitutionary death upon that cross for you, is that it's all you need, that it's sufficient for you. Brothers, your God is with you and for you at this table. You need no other. You need no other God. We have God in Christ for us. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you that you are our God and that you have given us everything that we need. And now we actually get to commune with one another as a hint of what we saw this morning, 
that we have perfect communion with God and with one another at this meal. Lord, help us to remove these false gods, these false idols, these wrong views, this unbelief from our hearts, that we are able to be solely committed to our God in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask that you be with us now. Amen.